Well, good evening. <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> uh, it's a great joy to be here once again, and I do bring greetings from uh, Johannesburg, and I'm um, here with one of our deacons, Mishwani, who's also uh, preached here, and I've been preaching through Chronicles uh, first, and we are now in Second Chronicles. And I thought that I would take one of the sermons which deals with an interesting topic. I'm sure you've seen the, the title there, Art, Architecture, and Aesthetics. And I just thought it would be uh, maybe something a little bit different and hopefully helpful. So we're going to look at that. Aesthetics is just the study of uh, beauty. And I think that God's Word has, a, has something to say about these topics. But not every verse is about this. So... There are certain topics in the Bible that, um, you know, are, are not that frequent. So you, you preach them when you come across them, but you can't make every sermon about them. It does seem that uh, today some churches, some pastors preach every sermon about the government or about tyranny or about politics or about gender, but you don't find that in Scripture. Uh, when you come across those topics, preach them. Otherwise, let the text preach, uh, let it stand and deal with what it says. Paul said that he... He gave the Ephesians the whole counsel of God, okay, not just one or two pet uh, topics, but the whole counsel of God, and that's, that's what we want. We want the whole counsel of God for the whole Christian, uh, and so I think this is a, a topic that the Bible does touch on in many places, but it's not everywhere in Scripture, but uh, hopefully you will find it helpful and, and Christ-centered and, and uh, a greater appreciation for the arts and for beauty. Because you might have a view similar to that of Plato, okay? Uh, Witz, uh, not Witz, sorry, sorry, that's an insult. Here in Poch in Northwest, <laughs> Northwest University. Uh, I, I think I read somewhere it's sort of the, the, the education town of South Africa. Is that correct? I've heard that uh, a, lot of, a lot of education goes on here. So I'm sure you're familiar with Plato. So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were Greek philosophers, uh, lived a few centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they dealt with a lot of issues trying to figure things out. Socrates didn't, as far as we know, didn't really write anything down, but his student Plato wrote some books and uh, to try and get across some of Plato's ideas, and he wrote one book called The Republic. And in The Republic, he says that the arts are immoral, deceptive, sensual, and superfluous. And unfortunately, I think many Christians have that, that worldview as well. Uh, they see that arts, and by that I mean things like music and uh, even, even uh, photography, graphic design, cinematography, theater, uh, statues, buildings. Uh, they might think, well, a lot of that is just immoral, and certainly sometimes it can be, but art overall is not immoral. Uh, they say it's deceptive or manipulative. It's trying to manipulate our emotions. And it's sensual. Certainly it is. It deals with our senses. Isn't that right? It's things that we see uh, and they, they have an effect upon us. Uh, or else we say they're superfluous. You know, how does that make money? Uh, how does that put food on the table? That's the bottom line. That's what it's all about. Uh, and so we look at the arts and say, well, it's largely irrelevant. And that is not a Christian uh, framework. And so here in Chronicles, and really the main passage I want us to look at is Second Chronicles chapter 3. So you can turn there, Second Chronicles chapter 3, just to give you some, 
setting. So uh, at this point, Solomon is, is preparing to build the temple. So the, the storyline of the Bible is that God calls Abraham and calls a nation, creates a nation for himself, the nation of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, they then go into captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Then they are delivered. God raises up a deliverer, a type or a shadow of Christ in the, in the form of Moses. And then in the wilderness, God makes a covenant with Moses, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And he, uh, they, they create this Ark of the Covenant, this little box that's covered in gold. And they put the Ten Commandments in there, the tablets in there. And they create a tent as well. It's called the Tent of Meeting or a Tabernacle. And that was really to symbolize God's presence. And a sacrificial system is set up, and you can read about that in Leviticus. And they, that goes with them as they wander through the wilderness. And then when they get to Israel, it's set up. Uh, and it's only much later under David that David conquers Jerusalem. It was a Jebusite city. He conquers Jerusalem. And he has it in his heart to build a house for God. He says, it can't be right that I live in a, in a, you know, a nice house with uh, brick walls or stone walls and a solid roof and the Ark of the Covenant is just outside in a tent. I want to build a proper building for the Ark of the Covenant, symbolic of God's presence. And God says to him, no, uh, you're not going to do that. And I think I, I did preach here before about how God didn't give him his heart's desire. It was a good desire. It was his heart's desire, and it was good. And sometimes God doesn't give us our heart's desire, even if it's good. In his sovereignty, in his wisdom, he does that. But David doesn't sulk or withdraw into self-pity. He says, okay, what? I can't build it, but I'm going to get everything ready. I'm going to make sure that all the gold and the silver and the materials is, and everything is ready for my son Solomon, because the Lord said uh, it must be a man of peace, and Solomon is going to be a man of peace. And so... Solomon is the one who is going to build it. And here we're getting to the place where they, they're going to build it, and the design is given to, to Solomon. Uh, in chapter 2, he writes a letter to King Hiram. Uh, this is after the passing of his father, and so now Solomon has to start with this project, and he writes to King Hiram, who's the king of Tyre, which is a bit north to Israel, and he asks him for help. He says, you know, I need your cedars, and I need your... Uh, skilled craftsmen, and Hiram says, okay, I'll help you. Um, I can see that God has blessed Israel and put a good king over Israel, and so he's going to help him. And then we come to chapter 3 and verse 1, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. At the site David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. And so uh, we're told where, where the temple is to be built, Mount Moriah. And that is the, the same place where many years before, Abraham had nearly sacrificed his son Isaac. Okay. And so that very location where Abraham, centuries before, had taken his son Isaac up to the top of that hill, and you know the story and how the Lord intervenes and says, I will provide a sacrifice. And of course, it, I don't think any Christian can read that story and not think of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and of Calvary, where God the Father did not spare his own son. I think Paul has that in mind when he says that. He who spared not his own son freely gave him up for us, uh, his love for us, so that we might be reconciled to him through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That place, full of that symbolism, uh, then becomes the place where David, when God is judging him because he numbers Israel, it's that place where he, he purchases the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite and he sacrifices animals there and the, the, the angel who had been uh, putting people to death stops because the sacrifice is made. And now that's going to be the place where the temple is going to be built, uh, where all the sacrifices that Israel uh, uh, has, to, has to go through for the next uh, thousand years will be where all the animals will be slaughtered. And so uh, he begins to build. Verse 2 says, He began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. And then we're given a description. These are Solomon's foundations for building God's temple. And I'm reading here from the whole, I think it's the Holman, uh, because it, it sort of gives us a more contemporary uh, measurements. So it tells us that the length of the temple was 90 feet, so 3 feet and a meter, so 30 meters, and the width, uh, 30 feet, 10 meters wide. The portico, or the porch, which was across the front, extending across the width of the temple, was 30 feet wide, 10 meters wide. Its height was 10 meters. And then we're told he overlaid its inner surface with pure gold. Okay, So try and use your imagination to... To picture the, the, I want you to see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of this temple. The whole of the inside is overlaid with, with gold, pure gold. Verse 5, the larger room he paneled with cypress wood, and then he overlays the cypress wood with fine gold, and decorated with palm trees and chains. He adorned the temple with precious stones for beauty. Uh, some of your translations might not say for beauty. It is there in the Hebrew. They leave it out because adorned means you make something beautiful. But both words are there. It's actually repeated. So it is he adorned the temple with precious stones for beauty. And that's important because uh, it's, it's there for beauty. And I'll unpack that a little bit further. It's, it doesn't serve any other purpose. And the gold was the gold of Pavium. He overlaid the temple, the beams, the thresholds, its walls and doors with gold, and he carved cherubim on the walls. These are powerful angels. Don't get the idea of sort of the Renaissance painters with little naked babies flying around, okay? Uh, the, Bibles in, uh, the angels in the Bible are always majestic and powerful. One angel is able to kill 185,000 people in a single night. Uh, when the Assyrians try to try to conquer Jerusalem, they are often portrayed with fiery uh, swords, and so majestic uh, images inside the temple. Verse eight. Then he made the most holy place, the holiest of holies. Its length corresponded to the width of the temple, thirty feet, or ten meters, and its width was was thirty feet, ten meters. Uh, it's a perfect cube, the holiest of holies at the end, uh, 
separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain, but it's a perfect cube, 10 meters by 10 meters by 10 meters. And that's important because when you come to Revelation and the symbolic language in Revelation, you know that this new Jerusalem is a perfect cube. Okay, maybe you've read that and you wonder, what a city that is the same height as it is wide, you know, long and wide, what's going on here? It's symbolic language to say that the whole world will be filled with the presence of God. Here, the holiest of holies was the one place where God's special presence was, and only the high priest could go in there once a year. And it was a frightening thing to do. It wasn't fun. It wasn't like, I'm going to go into the presence of God. It was the most frightening experience. He had to wash himself over. You can imagine how much he washed himself. Uh, Then he's shaking incense, filling it with smoke, hoping maybe God won't see him. Uh, Because if God is not happy, the sacrifices, the high priest is put to death. But because of Christ, because of his death, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness now. And the new heaven and new earth is a perfect cube. That's how it's symbolized to say the whole earth now is full of the presence of God. As the waters cover the sea, so the glory of God covers the whole earth. And we will live and dwell in the very presence of God. And so it's a perfect cube. And notice this, he overlays it with 45,000 pounds of fine gold. It's extravagant, isn't it? Okay. Maybe some of you are like, account, you do study in accounting. No, that's a bit much. Like, you know. <laughs> uh, the weight of the nails was 20 ounces of gold. Even the nails were gold. And he overlaid the ceiling with gold. Uh, the phrase he made occurs 14 times in chapters 3 and 4 and reminds us of Moses. Really what, what the chronicler is trying to get across here is that Solomon obeyed the instructions that God gave, and he made it according to the plan. Just as Moses had built the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant precisely according to God's plan, so Solomon does the same thing. Solomon is being linked to to Moses, like a second Moses. Verse 10 says he made two cherubim of sculptured work. So now we get into statues. He makes these two angels for the most holy place. So in the, in the most holy place, in that cube at the end, he makes these magnificent angels and overlays them with gold. The overall length of the wings of the cherubim was 30 feet. The wingspan was 10 meters. Okay. So massive. Okay. Uh, the wing of one was 7.5 feet touching the wall of the room. Its other wing was 7.5 feet touching the wing of the other cherub. The wing of the other cherub was 7.5 feet touching the wall of the room. Its other wing, etc., The wingspan of these cherubim was 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced the larger room. And then the the veil, the curtain. He made the veil of blue, purple, and crimson yarn and fine linen, and he wove cherubim into it. So we understand that uh, from from church history that these, or or history, that these uh, curtains had these angels woven into them, but with flaming swords. And that was to remind the Jews of the Garden of Eden. And so when Adam and Eve sinned and they were exiled from the Garden of Eden, remember that the Lord put angels there with flaming swords to stop them from entering. They could not go back into the presence of God. They could could not go back into paradise because of their sin. And here this curtain is symbolizing that. How are we going to have access to God? The way is blocked 
how are unholy, sinful people ever going to be in relationship with a, with a holy God? And you remember when, when Christ dies, what happens to the curtain? We're told that the curtain was rent from the top. So from, from heaven's side, God initiated it from the top to the bottom. It is rent, it is torn, symbolizing that the way is now open. So because of Christ, we can have access to God Verse 15, in front of the temple he made two pillars, each 27 feet high. So nearly, what's it, nine meters. The capital on, on top of each was seven and a half feet high. He, made, he had made chain work in the inner sanctuary and also put it on top of the pillars. He made a hundred pomegranates and fastened them into the chain work. Then he set up the pillars in front of the sanctuary, one on the right and one on the left. He named the one on the right Jachin and the one on the left Boaz. Chapter 4 continues with details regarding the temple furnishings in bronze and in gold. Okay, so uh, what, is, what does God's Word have to say about art? Uh, one, of the person, one, of the, one person who has thought a lot about this, he's gone to, gone to be with the Lord, is a man called Francis Schaeffer. And uh, he is quite an interesting person, and he, uh, he wrote a book called Art and the Bible. And he said this, he said, man by the fall fell at the same, well he quotes, here he's quoting from a a scientist called Francis Bacon, he said, man by the fall fell at the same time from his state of innocence and from his dominion over nature. Both of these losses, however, can even in this life be in some part repaired. The former by religion, and when he says religion there, he doesn't mean just general religion, it's the word has changed in meaning. For us now, it's a bit of a pejorative. But when he spoke about religion, remember even James says pure religion and undefiled. So the word is not bad. Uh, what he means by that is love for God, salvation, worshiping God, loving God. And so he says the former by religion and faith and the latter by the arts and sciences. So how do we restore dominion over nature? We have been given dominion over nature by God. And uh, how do we restore that? Well, he says through the arts and sciences. Schaefer then says this, How I wish that evangelical Christians in the United States and Britain and across the world had had this vision for the last 50 years. The arts and the sciences do have a place in the Christian life. They are not peripheral. For a Christian redeemed by the work of Christ and living within the norms of Scripture and under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, The lordship of Christ should include an interest in the arts. We believe that God is sovereign over all things and is Lord over all things, not just Sundays, not just church things, but of all of life. Uh, That every part of the universe, every part of uh, the earth and culture, and I I view culture as everything that human beings do, uh, God is sovereign over all of those things. A Christian should use arts to the glory of God, not just as tracts, mind you, but as things of beauty to the praise of God. An artwork can be a doxology in itself. Nonetheless, while the concept of the Lordship of Christ over the whole world would seem to include the arts, many Christians will respond by saying that the Bible has very little to say about the arts. More specifically, some people say that the Jews had no interest in art because of what the Scripture says in the Ten Commandments, but that is just what we cannot say if we read the Bible carefully. 
What he's referring to there is the commandment in Exodus 20 verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So many people have taken that commandment to say, you know, we shouldn't make statues or art. That's not really anything. That's something we should stay away from because this commandment says that. Well, you have a problem because here the temple is full of these things. Isn't that right? We've already read about pomegranates and angels being created, all of these different things. And you can read other accounts where there's palm trees as well. Uh, So what's going on here? It seems to be a contradiction. There isn't a contradiction. The issue is you mustn't make things that you worship. That's the issue. God is saying idolatry. When you make something and you worship it, so I grew up in, in, a, in a sort of fundamentalist church where, I don't, you know, if you've ever traveled to Zimbabwe on the road and then you, you know, they sell soapstone carvings on the side of the road and they're really beautiful, it's hornbills and all sorts of interesting things and, uh, and if you bought any of those things it would be frowned upon, you know, you're bringing statues, graven images into your, into your home and that's just not the case at all. If you were bowing down to worship them, that's the issue. It's not art in and of itself. It is the idolizing of art. And that's true of everything. Uh, We can idolize anything and put it as a replacement of God. And that is what is sinful. Worship is the issue, not art. Now I want you to see that God is concerned about what is beautiful. So that verse I read to you earlier, 2 Chronicles 3 verse 6, He adorned the temple with precious stones for beauty. And the gold was the gold of Pavium. Our God is a God of beauty. Okay? Our God loves beauty. You see here that uh, Schaefer says this, What therefore was to be in the temple? For one thing the temple was to be filled with artwork. And he, Solomon, garnished the house with precious stones for beauty. Notice this carefully. The temple was covered with precious stones for beauty. There was no pragmatic reason for the precious stones. They had no utilitarian purpose. There was no practical use. It wasn't that, you know, the stones were there as steps or something like that, or you could hang things on them. They were just simply there for beauty. Us in the West, we've been very influenced by pragmatism, even in the church. From the American church, lots of good things, but also some bad things. And one of the things is the pragmatism. Pragmatism is the philosophy, the idea that, you know, if it works, then it's okay. But you never think long-term. It's just short-term results. So it might seem to work at one level, uh, and the church really absorbed this, give people what they want to hear, and the churches seem to grow. And then they realize, wait a minute, no one's actually saved. Because all we've told them is what they want to hear. And if you ask goats what they want to hear, they're not going to tell you, I want to hear the gospel. Uh, I want to hear about my sin. I want to hear about Christ and what he has accomplished. They'll want to hear life hacks, you know, 10 steps to a successful business, 7 steps to a good marriage, whatever it is. So pragmatism is is bad, okay? Uh, It's not a good thing. And if you're a pragmatist, you don't have a lot of time for beauty, okay? It is seen as superfluous. It seems largely irrelevant. It doesn't make money. It doesn't seem to make money. What's the point of it? But God is not like that. Schaefer says this, 
God simply wanted beauty in the temple. God is interested in beauty. Come with me to the Alps and look at the snow-covered mountains. So he was from America, but he, he emigrated to, to Sweden, Switzerland, one of them. <laughs> uh, anyway, where the Alps are. And he, he lived there, and he actually opened his home up to... He lived during the sort of 60s, during the hippie movement, when a lot of young people were becoming disenchanted with, with life. They looked through the facade of their parents' life. So their parents, many of them had sort of uh, um, come through World War II and things like that. And so they were very frugal and then they just wanted a, a sort of a quiet life. And they said, look, we just want a nice house with a white picket fence and just they became sort of materialistic. And the hippies said, surely there's more to life than that. These young people were looking at this and saying, is that what life is about? Is it simply to get a house with two bedrooms and a you know, white picket fence and mow the lawn every week? Is that what life is all about? Uh, and they had good questions. Unfortunately, most of them went to the wrong place for answers. Uh, and and, and we, we, you, you can Google that. Okay. <laughs> uh, but some of them turned to Christ. Because that's not what life is reduced to. It's not just so that you die with a whole lot of stuff, uh, and, and that's, that's it. Uh, you know, you go to school, go to varsity, get a job, do this, do that, and then die. That's not the meaning of life. We're here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever uh, and in various spheres of life. And so Schaefer would meet with these young people and answer their questions. He believed that the Bible could answer all of these fundamental questions. Uh, and so what he's saying is, look at the Alps. I've never been to, to, to Europe. I've been to the UK, but I've never, so I've never seen the Alps. I've seen them on photos and videos. They look amazing. But, you know, if you've seen the Drakensberg, it's not the same, but it's similar, just much smaller. Um, but we understand the beauty of nature. How many of you over your holidays went somewhere that you didn't say, oh, you know, uh, I want to go to some ugly place. He said, Let's, I want to go to the, the beach or I want to go to the Kruger Park. You want to see beauty. We understand that uh, because God created us for that. God is interested in beauty. He says God, is, God made people to be beautiful and beauty has a place in the worship of God. Young people often point out the ugliness of many evangelical church buildings. Unfortunately, they are often right. Uh, that's true. It's very sad what has happened. You think the history of, of architecture and the beautiful cathedrals that have been created, and they're still there, and they, they remind us still of, the, of Christ. Okay? Uh, even when they've, they've, even maybe they're just museums, but there's still something there that says, okay, what, why is this building here? What happened here? What went on? Uh, so many churches today just look like warehouses, uh, and really they... they they're being honest because they sort of turn church into a uh, cinema experience, an entertainment. Um, they, they, uh, that's, that's, that's all they're really concerned about, entertaining and, and that's it. Uh, and architecture bears these things out. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to build this type of building or anything like that, and I understand finances and all of those things, so understand me. But... Uh, we are missing out on something if we don't have a, a Christian framework for architecture and beauty in every sphere of life. He says this, 
Fixed down in our hearts is a failure to understand that beauty should be to the praise of God. But here in the temple which Solomon built, under the leadership of God himself, beauty was given an important place. As you think of creation, um, how many, how beautiful is creation? You know, God could have been a pragmatist, isn't that right? He didn't have to give us beautiful trees to filter our, our air. He could have put big concrete air filters. <laughs> isn't that right? He could have done that. He didn't have to make beautiful oceans and rivers. He could have just built a, you know, a big swimming pool or something like that, a big reservoir, and put everything in there. Uh, it's functional. It does the job. But he's lavish, isn't he? And all the animals and uh, the stars and the beauty. We don't. What's the functional value apart from the sun? What's the functional takeaway from all the other stars? Okay, it's simply beauty. We look out on a clear night and we, we're amazed. And that's exactly what the psalmist says, isn't that right? The heavens declare the glory of God. It's just beautiful. Uh, all the, the birds, why did he have to, he didn't have to make so many varieties. And, and why did he make them sing? Isn't that glorious? Uh, it's nice now. Spring is getting nearer and we're starting, I said to my wife yesterday, we're starting to see the little weavers come and, and steal uh, leaves from our palm tree. <laughs> Uh, because they're, they're going to start making nests now. But you see, it's all beautiful. Because God is a God of beauty. He's concerned about these things. He's lavish in it. And there's a connection between holiness and beauty. You see, we are made in the image of God. We're told that in Genesis. And there's a lot of debate amongst theologians exactly what that means. But I, I've always felt that in, if you're going to take it in context... Properly in context, so you, you, there's no, uh, remember Genesis is written, there isn't other, anything else written yet, maybe Job, but, so you're reading, it's all about God creating, so what do we know about God? He's a creative God, and then it says we're made in his image, and so I think fundamentally one of the things that Genesis 1, is, uh, 1 and 2 are telling us is we are creative beings. Many other things to the image of God, but, but one of the primary things, at least especially in Genesis, is we are also made to create. God is a, is, is a creator and we create. We don't create ex nihilo. We don't create out of nothing. We're not God, but we, are, we, we create. And all of you do it to one degree or another. And let me encourage you to use your artistic talents. Some of you, maybe you were just when you were, were, were younger, you, you did that. You wrote songs and poetry and then you get older and you're like, ah, what's the point? No, use it. Use it for God's glory. I told our church, start writing hymns. Some of you have that gift. Some of you are, are very gifted writers that you can write blogs. And, I, and remember, what, we're not saying everything has to be Christian, like it has to be, you know, you have to talk about Jesus. Christians can talk about anything. You can write science fiction books. You can create science fiction movies. You can create statues. Uh, you can do art. All of these things. Photography. Graphic design. Use your artistic abilities to the glory of God. And if you can get hold of Schaefer's little book, Art in the Bible, uh, he gives some helpful guidelines how to discern between good art and bad art. But I want you to see that there is a wealth of different types of art in the temple. So we have statues. Okay? Statues of angels. They made these statues of angels. 
You say, no, but, that, you know, an angels, that's religious. Okay, that's different. Well, what else is there? There's pomegranates. That's not very religious. There's palm trees. There's all other things. There's flowers. There's almond blossoms. What is that there to do? That's to remind them of the Garden of Eden. Okay. All of those fruit and trees and blossoms are to remind them of the Garden of Eden, of paradise, when Adam and Eve walked with God. And there's even abstract art. Did you know that? Some of us are like, abstract art, that's not real art. So many Christians are like, I could have done that. <laughs> My three-year-old could have done that. <laughs> well, be careful. Um, a lot of those artists who do that are incredibly gifted, and they're, they're sending a message. It might be a wrong message, but they're saying something about their worldview. But even here is abstract art. The pomegranates had different colors, blue, purple, and scarlet. You don't get blue pomegranates. Okay? It's abstract imagination god give, has given us imagination and we are, should use that there's even symbolic art there are two pillars there i don't know if you notice that two pillars they get names uh Jacob means establishes and boaz means strength is in him these pillars serve no architectural purpose they have no weight upon them okay they're purely there for symbolism they were a thing of beauty. Okay. No practical purpose, we would say. You don't need them in the building. But God put them there because they're beautiful and they're symbolic. And so all these different types of art are there. And I want to close with an apologetic of beauty. Okay. C.S. Lewis used this. Now, apologetic means a defense. Okay. So when we, when we uh, if you're on campus... You guys go out on Saturday and you evangelize. You, a lot, oftentimes you're involved in what we call apologetics. You're seeking to defend the faith, give a reason for the hopes. So and people say, but what about this? What about that? What about the problem of evil? What about evolution? What about this? What about that? And you, you seek in a loving way to answer those questions and defend the Christian faith. But there are many different types of apologetics, and one of them is beauty. Okay. Why, is, why is there beauty? It doesn't make sense in an atheistic worldview, isn't that right? Because <laughs> what nothing, everything means nothing. Right? So how can something be more or less beautiful? Or uh, what's going on there? Well, C.S. Lewis says beauty is there to create longing. Okay, it's there to create a longing in us. In a sermon that he preached called "The Weight of Glory," he says the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. Have you ever experienced that? Look at an artwork or listen to a song, and there's a sense of longing. You can't put your finger on it. There's something, it's, it's taking you somewhere beyond. And that's what art, good art is supposed to do. There's something more, something greater. Something more glorious, something more beautiful. He says these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited.
They're little pointers from God for something beyond this world, to the new heaven and new earth. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. See, that longing for God has been, uh, our, our, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in, in you. And God has set eternity in our hearts. There is in every human being a longing for God. Uh, people suppress that and turn to false gods and flee from God. But that's what we were created for, to be, uh, as, the, as the early church fathers said, brought into the dance of the Trinity. And that's what Jesus is praying in John 17, that we would be one with the triune God that we would experience their joy and uh, not to become God or anything like that, but to be brought into that relationship, not just to see beauty, but to, to be brought into it, to be satisfied in it. And Paul, I think, picks up on this in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4 verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Now you might read that and think, oh, that sounds sort of like Paul, you know, we must think on the Bible and, and think on Jesus, and of course you must do that. But theologians and commentators have noticed that Paul never uses these words. And these words that he is using were common words to dis- in Greco-Roman culture to describe the beauty of art and architecture. And so Paul is saying, notice what he's saying here, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, uh, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, he would never say that about the scriptures or about the Lord, if there is anything praiseworthy. (laughs) Of course, the scriptures are perfect and full of praise. He's saying, in your life, start to be discerning. How often do you sit and you binge watch a Netflix show and you're like halfway through, this is junk, but anyway... You become, you just watch a million YouTube videos. You just get used to ugly buildings. You, you, you don't care about music, whether it's beautiful or good. What are the lyrics? What is it saying? Does the, the tune match the lyrics? Is it helping? Uh, what's going on here? Is it good? Is it serving its purpose? Is it helping in any way? Paul is saying here, start to think discerningly about the world that you live in. What is true, what is good, what is honorable, what is right, if it's, if it's lovely, if there's anything excellent in it, anything worthy of praise. And even if it's done by an unbeliever, we can praise it. Because they're made in the image of God and they can do these amazing things. Okay? Christians are the only ones who can enjoy all things properly. Okay? Because we understand that that person is made in the image of God and if there's anything good that they do, it's because of God. We can enjoy sport properly. Okay? When we see the, the wing receiving the ball and running down and skipping two tackles, we can praise God. God gave him that ability. We can rejoice. We don't have to feel guilty about it. When we hear a song that is beautiful, when we, when we listen to a Tchaikovsky who was, who was an ungodly person, not a believer, but we can say, this is amazing. Or you see an artwork, whatever it is, because we look through it to, 
to God if it is praiseworthy and good and well done. So let me encourage you in that. Uh, to use the own, your gifts that you have, to be creative, to serve God in whatever way. I believe that every, because we're made in the image of God. Some of you maybe are more engineering, more accounting, but you all, we all have it. Okay? You all have something. And we often just, often we get hurt. Uh, we lose sort of romance and then we stop doing those things. We think they're silly. No. Uh, start doing them again. Our God is a beautiful God, and he wants us to do that, and so that we can, we can point people to the one who is absolutely beautiful, to Christ. Create that longing in people, an apologetic of beauty, that they would be drawn to the beauty of Christ. I do believe that, that every one of us longs for beauty, and that that's why Christ, what, what theologians call the beatific vision, when we see him, we'll be satisfied. And even more than that, uh, we, are, we are brought into that, that relationship with the Trinity. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that um, your scripture is sufficient and deals with so many areas of life and that you are Lord of every area of life and you are a beautiful God, a glorious God, and you've created a beautiful world and you call us to be uh, men and women who create beauty as well, uh, that imitate you. And so, Father, we do pray that you would help us to use the varied gifts you've given us uh, to, to exalt your name, to create a sense of longing in people. We give opportunity to speak of Christ and show people the one who is altogether lovely, the one who alone can satisfy those longings for beauty. And so please do this, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.